Well, good morning. I'm so glad you could be with me today in our Wednesdays in the Word. We're in the midst, as you know, an extended study of the book of Romans, working our way through it verse by verse. Today, I want to pick up our reading in chapter 3, starting in verse 5 and reading through about verse 12. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Well, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. As you know, if you've been with me, we've been examining in these opening chapters of the book of Romans the fact of the inescapable accountability that every person faces before the God who is really there, an accountability for their sin and rebellion against God. All men and all women have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and all face accountability before God as a result of that sin and rebellion. That's why Romans 1.16, which was really the kickoff verse for this portion of the book of Romans, says, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. <laughs> All of us need that power because none of us is in a position where we are sinless. All of us are sinners before God. And more importantly than that, the Bible is very clear to us that there's absolutely nothing I can do or you can do to solve our sin problem, to wash away the effect of our rebellion against God. Once we have become unrighteous, we are unrighteous. And the requirement to live in the presence of the Lord and to be with him is to be righteous and holy as he is righteous and holy. No one can solve, as we've discovered, their sin problem. All have that sin problem, but no one can solve it by trying to turn over a new leaf. Because it doesn't matter how many good things you start to do, you still are tainted, stained by the effects of your choices of rebellion and sin. There's nothing that we can do to solve our problem of sin by trying to be more religious. There's nothing that we can do to solve our problem of sin by going through some sort of religious sacrament or religious rite. You see, only the gospel is powerful enough to save the unsavable. Only the gospel is powerful enough to solve the unsolvable. And our sin is truly unsolvable. And our sin is truly unsavable, left to anything you and I can do. Thankfully, God has done something. <laughs> 
Now today, in this latter portion, as we continue moving forward in the third chapter, Paul, under direction of the Holy Spirit, is going to be summarizing some of these themes for us, heading toward the climax in the third chapter of all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. But before he turns to that, starting in verse 5 and then on through verse 8, we encounter kind of a very interesting or almost odd portion of the Word of God. Let's look at it together. He says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? <laughs> Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us, even though we're doing that and so forth? You remember the verses that I read to you. <laughs> What's going on here is Paul is addressing almost a final futile attempt of some people to avoid this answerability and culpability before God for their sin. What do I mean by that? Well, the Jews and other religious people could no longer argue sinlessness is a way to earn salvation. They could no longer argue, based on what we've already seen clearly developed in these parts of the book of Romans, they could no longer argue that their zealous religious efforts, their determination to go through some sacraments and religious rites, could change the condition of their sin. But some yet, despite that picture of the scriptures, grasping at straws, so to speak, <laughs> try to come up with some in desperation, some sort of answer that would move them out of condemnation, they offered another argument. And it had to have been offered by some, or God would not have addressed the argument. Maybe people didn't voice this argument that we're going to look at so much as they believed it inside. But nonetheless, the argument was there. What was that argument? Well, the argument was this. My very sinfulness, my inadequacy, the fact that I fall short of God and God's righteousness can actually be useful to God. Well, what does that mean? Well, the argument follows this way. My very sinfulness helps, by way of contrast, to demonstrate God's holiness, to demonstrate his righteousness. So in a sense, my sinfulness is actually useful to God. I've done something of value here, because by study of contrast, I'm demonstrating what God must be like, because it's got to be different than what I'm like. <laughs> now, again, it seems like a very foolish argument, doesn't it? But yet sometimes we are fools in our own minds. As Galatians says, we are darkened in our understanding, is a description of the world apart from the Lord. Well, is this study in contrast, does the fact that our very failure helps to underscore the righteousness and holiness of God by way of contrast, does this add anything to our count? Does this reality of our failure and resulting contrast with the righteousness and holiness of God, does this somehow change the equation? Because I'm able at least to offer that, is, is God going to respond to that and say, well, at least that's something anyway? <laughs> Literally, what's saying here is, will God go easy on me? Because at least, if nothing else, I'm demonstrating this on behalf of the Lord. 
And the answer that, that God gives us here, I say, I was going to say the answer Paul gives us, but understand, uh, whatever the authors, the human authors of these passages, that's all God-breathed words. So it's God's answer to us. His answer is, essentially, are you serious? <laughs> I, I think that's a good way to figure it out. Are you serious? Do you, are you really going to put forth this argument? This line of argument essentially is saying, well, evil can be useful in God's hands. Our study and contrast of our own failure uh, should be rewarded in some way by God. <laughs> Listen, are you serious? Can you really want to bank your future in eternity upon such a faulty, inadequate, grasping at straws sort of hope? This view that somehow God is obligated to us because at least we're showing this contrast with his righteousness totally ignores the reality of God's holiness and justice. The reason we have our problem in the first place is because of our sin. The sin has to separate us from a holy and righteous and just God. Sin cannot dwell in his presence. So even if that study in contrast in some way uh, underscores how different God is from humanity, it could never pay for our sin. It could never ultimately change our personal condition. What condition? The condition of being a sinner separated from God. It ignores, this line of argument would ignore the fact of a moral universe with accountability for sin. It would undercut the very authority of the scriptures. Now, this faulty argument that, again, are you serious? Can you really hold this in your mind? This faulty argument is no solution and don't hang on it. In fact, notice how he ends in these verses. He says, these, their condemnation is just. Those that would argue this type of thing, all that in itself becomes even more condemnation for them because it would be such foolishness and dishonoring to God that it makes their condition even worse than it was to start with. Those who would suggest this futile argument, their condemnation is just. All right. Well, there, that final <laughs> grasping at straws argument of some alternative to deal with our sin, the alternative of the study and contrast, has been clearly dealt with by God. There is no foundation of solution to be found there. Well, having dealt with that, starting in verse 9, uh, which is our primary focus today, God turns attention to this bottom line question. What is the true condition of humanity? And the answer is that we are all sinners. And as a result, we are all separated from God. And as a result, we all stand in need of a Savior. As he put it in verse 9, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together we have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. 
Well, that's the biblical diagnosis. No one is better off than anyone else before God. We look at one another on a human level and we have sort of a picture of some people being better than other people, nicer than other people, more moral than other people. But before God, all are under sin. All have separation now and forever as the inevitable outcome. Everyone is under sin. That's the way it's translated at the end of verse 9. All of humanity, Jews, Greeks, Americans, men, women, all humanity is under sin. There's the quote, under sin. All, everyone. This phrase, all, or everyone, or no one, that sort of idea of inclusiveness, all-inclusiveness, is used nine times, believe it or not, between verses 9 and verse 20 of chapter 3. We won't get, it, of course, to verse 20 today. But what I want to turn your attention to is that God is describing in his culminating argument here an indictment of everybody. The point is pretty clear. All of us fit the description of being a sinner under sin, separated from God as a result. In Ephesians chapter 2, God discusses some of that, identifies it for us. In Ephesians 2, he says, all of us are by nature objects of wrath, meaning all of us have lived in rebellion against God. No one is exempt from that. Later on in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, as a result of that, a consequence of that, we are hopeless, helpless, and without God in this world. There's the biblical description of humanity. And if you've been following the argument from the middle of chapter 1, now into chapter 3, God is making it unmistakable and really undebatable. We are all sinners separated from him. And he pulls it together here with this phrase in verse 9, under sin. What does it mean to be under sin? He says, all, all, everybody is under sin. God has clearly defined for us what that phrase means. And it's one of these haunting phrases from the word of God that says much about the human condition. To be under means to be guilty of, to be answerable for, to be under sin. Now, what is this sin that's being discussed here? The word sin is a English translation of hamartia in the Greek, which is the word we find in the original language here of this passage. And that word, hamartia, is a rich word. It has a number of related ideas. I don't think we have any single English word that adequately adequately gives all of those connotations and implications. Now, the word sin is what is used, but sin can be so diffuse in its definition that people don't always understand what's being meant by that. Let's look at that word, hamartia, a little bit more. As you understand this word as God has it in the Koine Greek for us, 
It has several concepts interwoven into it that help us to understand the essence of what sin is all about, why all of us are under sin. This particular word, hamartia, in some senses means to have literally missed the mark. Think of someone in archery taking a shot, using the archery, shooting the arrow, and the arrow totally misses the mark. It doesn't hit the target. Uh, Hamartia means that. Sin is to miss the target. By the way, what target is that? The target of God's righteousness and holiness. The things he is holding us accountable for as his people. The old covenant was you must do this if you want relationship with me. You must be righteous. To sin is to have missed the mark. We are no longer hitting <laughs> in the center of the target. We're not being who God has called us to be. So, to have missed the mark is part of what God is turning our attention to. The word also means, and is used in the Greek language at times, to describe somebody who oversteps a boundary. So, missing the mark, stepping outside of the boundary, overstepping it. Think of a child who is told, I want you to stay in the yard, and they go outside the yard. Uh, or think of uh, someone in the military who leaves where they were told to stay. Uh, in, in English or in the United States, we talk about A-W-O-L, uh, absent without leave. Somebody's uh, under the military control and then they leave where they've been assigned. And that's a condition of, for which they're culpable, A-W-O-L. To overstep a boundary. To be under sin means that someone has stepped outside the boundary that God has set for them. Isn't that helpful? Uh, the boundary that God has set for mankind is to be holy and righteous like he is, to stay within that moral framework. And to sin, hamartia means to have stepped outside the boundary that has been drawn for you and I. To have missed the mark, to have stepped outside the boundary. In certain cases, this Greek word hamartia, translated sin here, means to fall instead of stand. It describes a condition of weakness. Uh, somebody is expected to be doing something, and in weakness they can't do it. So they've fallen instead of standing to accomplish the task. That does give us an insight into sin, doesn't it? God is holding an expectation for us to align with his truth. Do as I've commanded you. And we stumble and fall instead of keeping in strength, erect, and standing. By the way, that's why often sin is called a stumbling, because it's rooted in this sort of underlying concept of sin. At times, this Greek word hamartia, in certain contexts, can refer to being ignorant instead of knowing. In other words, it is a determination to willfully turn from the truth to error or self-deception. That is the condition of humanity a lot, isn't it? A willful determination to turn. That's, by the way, remember at the end of chapter 1, where it says people, what could be known about God was clear, both in creation and in what he put inside of man, and people willingly ignore it and reject it and turn 
themselves. So they are willingly ignorant instead of acting on the knowledge that God has given. Self-deception and willing determination to turn away from what can be known about God. That's what sin is as well. It also, in certain cases, can have the idea of being willfully careless. In other words, knowingly ignoring a peril. Uh, you, for example, you knew that if you walked too close to this uh, to this edge of this lane and this cliff, uh, it could crumble. The, the path could crumble on your feet. You were you were being unnecessarily in a dangerous place, and there was a consequence from being in it. So sometimes sin is the determination to try to walk too close to the edge of righteousness and unrighteousness. And the very fact of being out there in the danger zone ensured that you would fall. All right, do you see how rich, I guess my point in all of this, is that God goes to great lengths to give us a term here that truly helps us to understand the dilemma of humanity as sinners. They miss the mark. They overstep the boundary. They fall instead of stand. They're ignorant willingly instead of knowing and acting on that knowledge. They walk too close to the edge and willingly ignore their peril from doing that. God says all of us, and again, there's the determination, all of us are, are and are accountable for hamartia, sin. All of us have missed the mark of his holiness and his righteousness. All of us have willingly stepped outside and beyond the boundaries of righteousness as God's righteous dictates written on our conscience and written in his word are laid out for us. All of us have fallen instead of standing firm in the face of temptation to rebel against God's truth. All of us have knowingly turned at different times from the truth of God written on our conscience, written in our hearts, revealed in his scripture. All of us have ignored the warnings that God's word gives us and have walked too close to those areas that have eventually been our undoing. We've ignored his warnings and the peril that comes with it. So what are we talking about? Well, being under sin, that's our phrase now in verse 9. Being under sin essentially summarizes the truth of the life of every person in this world, including me, including you. That has been the truth about us. And God says the gospel makes no sense unless we first understand our true dilemma. The true dilemma of every man and woman in this world is that they are under sin. They are sinners, no longer righteous, facing accountability before God, inescapable accountability before God, because of that sin. It's only when one realizes their dilemma, the truth of their condition, that then they turn to the Lord and say, what can be done? <laughs> I, I am undone. Here's the truth of my life. What can be done, Lord? What can be done? And God says, I've done something. I've sent my son to die on your behalf, to pay the penalty you would have had to pay. You are a sinner. You cannot solve your problem, but I've solved it for you. If you will turn in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of that gospel, because <laughs> it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, and everyone needs to believe it. And if they don't, they are inescapably accountable before God. No one will be able to argue their case. And if they have not turned to Christ before they die, they are permanently left in that condition of sin and separation from the God who is really there. So here, let me pose some questions to you as we draw this to a close today. In light of the standards of God revealed in his word, even written on your conscience, how are you doing? Can you in good conscience reasonably say before God, well, I've kept all of those things. I mean, who would be foolish enough to do that? In light of God's standards, how are you doing? <laughs> Have you ever broken the moral standards of God? Have you ever broken the standards of your own conscience? Or perhaps, let's capstone it in this way. Have you ever broken the greatest of the commandments? Remember what that was? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. How are you doing on the criteria that God lays out? An honest answer to that very reality reveals why each one of us needs the power of the gospel. When we see what the Bible means by sin, we realize we are sinners. When we see what the Bible means by sin and culpability, we realize we are answerable for that sin. And we also realize we're helpless and hopeless to answer for it. There's nothing we can do to solve it. God needed to solve it. And therefore, what we encounter in verses 10 and 11 here, and I'm going to read them to you again, Verses 10 and 11 truly summarize the human condition. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. There was one who was, the Lord Jesus Christ, but none of us. No one understands. No one seeks for God. You say, well, there's times when I've sought God. Yes, but have you sought him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you loving him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? The answer is, well, no. And so God says, well, then you're really not seeking me. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. He says, no one does good. Not even one. Meaning, does good as the characteristic of their life. Not that you can't do a good thing. But are you good? Is that true? These verses, 10 and 11, explain to all of us why we need Jesus, why we need this gospel, because all of us are sinners and culpable for that sin, answerable before God, and there's nothing that we can do to pay for it and solve it. God had to do something for us. <clears throat> Later in verse 23 of this third chapter, it says, For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. Therein is the bottom line. Do you see it? Now next time, as we continue in our study, we'll talk more about this inescapable accountability and begin to see God's development of that loving answer 
to this impossible condition that all of us see. Join me then, won't you? God bless.